Lord, we ask once again that you would just help us. God, give us understanding, stir our minds, and Lord, stir our hearts that we would see the beauty of who you are and just be stunned. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, ladies, this week has kind of been um, an interesting week, a sad and interesting week. Um, thinking about what's happening on the world scene in the war with Israel and Hamas and uh, just the human suffering and what comes with war. I mean, certainly we've been watching it in Ukraine, but now we're a whole other front is being opened up. And we're looking at what that means and, you know, the fight for land, the fight for power, the fight for their God, whatever you want to call it, the death of the innocent. It, it's been really hard to watch. You've got this huge global issue. And then for me, in the last few days, there's been an issue at my work. Um, a good friend, it was time, you know, they made the decision to terminate her job. And um, I get that, you know, things like that happen. But the way things went down was pretty hurtful, and it was very emotional for me yesterday, to be honest. You know, a lot of emotions, anger, hurt, frustration. But the beauty of it, especially since it involved, you know, people that are Christians on both sides of that. But the beauty of being in God's Word consistently is, you know, once, once you kind of take a minute and take a breath, and get before the Lord and ask him to readjust your vision to look at those things, whether they're huge and they're horrible on the world scene, or they're just a difficulty and a hurt that comes in a personal level, you know, at your job, just to be reminded of all that we're learning in Romans about the reality of who we are as sinful people and the battle between sin versus righteousness and, you know, judgment you know, versus grace and all that God has done. What, who do we choose to be our master? All of those things are rolling around in my mind, and especially some things I'm going to talk about tonight were so helpful to me to adjust my attitude because I can only clean my side of the street and get my attitude where it needed to be so that what was spilling over in the flesh did not continue to spill over in the flesh and bring about death versus life. And that's what's so great about consistently staying under the, the word of the Lord is it gives you not only a window to see God, but a mirror to see yourself and to check yourself in those things. And, um, and I just appreciate all of you hanging with me through Romans. You know, we're, we're taking a fairly in-depth and it's a long haul. But, you know, ideally we should all be under God's word every day of our life because that is the gift that he has given us. So I just want to encourage you to press on. If you miss a few weeks, come back. I mean, you can keep up. You can follow along. Um, and as we look at Romans, at the same time that we look at God's, I mean, we look at sin and suffering and, and this week as we see death, what we really see is how much more. And I just love that phrase. I was thinking to myself, I need a t-shirt that says how much more. And then I thought, mm, I don't know, that might not be the best idea. So, <laughs> you know, I don't really think about that, but that's great meaning to me, but someone else might wonder why I'm walking around with a t-shirt that says how much more. But that phrase meant, has meant so much to me this week. It's just really a key to Romans as we look at the Lord. But at the same time, this passage, you know, our, the book of Romans has got its own challenges. 
And one author said this about it, and I want to read this because I think it's just so great. It's talking about studying in Romans, and he says, Everyone who wishes to understand this letter more fully must recognize that it opens vistas that extend beyond the reach of human vision. I love that. And it generates tensions that defy easy resolution. We're going to see a lot of those tensions. We've already seen some of them, that you can't always put it in nice, neat little boxes. The extent, now I love this, because some of you have been in Bible study a long time, and you've got a good background. You can grasp a lot more. Some of you are new to Bible study, but I want to, I want to encourage you with this. He says, the extent of those vistas, how amazing they are, and the power of those tensions make comparisons between students' abilities to read and understand Romans an empty enterprise. In other words, don't look at what someone else is doing or what they get. That, that's an empty enterprise because this is his illustration, and I've never been here, but his illustration says, no one standing at the top of Mount Fuji at sunrise is concerned whether she can see better than others. Instead, everyone tries to see some of Fuji's five lakes as far as the morning weather allows. So I want to encourage you, don't miss, don't miss what God has for you just because maybe you feel like someone else sees further or gets more than you. The goal is to see yourself. So I want to encourage you in that too because Romans is a challenge. It's a challenge. All right, so many consider the passage tonight um, the most difficult in Romans. The truths that we're going to see are on one hand very simple and clear when accepted by faith, but on the other hand, they're beyond human comprehension because there's a mystery in them, as there are with many things that have to do with God and his ways. The first three verses that we're going to look at, 12 through 14, lay the foundation for the rest of the chapter. Paul is going to focus on Adam and the reign of death that sin has brought. Okay, so let me read that to you. All right, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. And then here's a little parenthesis. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now, he's not done with the parentheses, but we're going to stop right there. All right. So, in these first three verses, Paul is going to focus on Adam and the reign of death that his sin has brought. Then in 15 through 21, he's going to focus on Christ and the reign of his life. No truth from these first three verses is more obvious than the fact that death is inevitable. Since creation, every person has died except for Enoch and Elijah. So why does death reign? Why must everyone die? Paul answers that in this text, but his primary purpose is not to explain why all people died. Paul's goal is to explain how one man's death could bring salvation to everyone who has faith. It's if you have faith in Christ's substitution for you, his sacrificial substitution. That's ultimately where Paul is going. 
So he sets the stage or the foundation for that truth by explaining how one man's sin produced condemnation for so many. Okay, so that's what he's doing at the beginning. He starts in verse 12 with therefore. He connects this analogy that he's going to be making to what he has just said, which he said uh, right before that, that not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And we talked about that ladder and all those assurances of our salvation and blessings from what Christ has done, ultimately ending with the beauty of reconciliation, a very personal, intimate relationship that we have with God. Okay? Now, this section will set the foundation for what we're going to see in chapters 6 through 8. So here's our first truth. Adam set the destination for mankind, but Christ changed that direction. Adam set the destination for mankind, but Christ changed that direction. Adam set the destination for mankind, but Christ changed that direction. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. And then he talks about before the law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Okay? Sin entered the world through Adam. It does not say that sin originated with Adam. In 1 John 3, 8, it says Satan has sinned from the beginning. So I propose that sin originated with Satan. Now, I can't tell you. We go back a little further. It's kind of like people that try to figure out where the world came from that don't believe God spoke it into existence. You keep going back further. I'm not going to tell you exactly how sin came through Satan. I'm just going to tell you that that's as far back as we're seeing. 1 John 3, 8. Satan has sinned from the beginning is part of that verse. God gave Adam one command. Do not eat of this one particular tree. The day you eat, you will surely die. Notice, Paul says, just as sin, singular, entered the world. This shows that sin is not here a particular, it's not about particular unrighteous acts, but the inherent propensity to unrighteousness. It's an inherent propensity to unrighteousness. The indwelling sin nature, because of his first disobedience, that he passed on to his posterity. Now, let me show you a clue to that, okay? Go to Genesis 1.27. Keep your place in Romans and go to Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Adam was created in whose image? Okay, now go over to Genesis 5, 1 through 3. We're doing the genealogy of Adam's line through Seth, the chosen line, and let's notice what it says here in this genealogy. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. Now look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and named him Seth. Interesting, isn't it? That 
once sin entered, then you see a change. Now, that doesn't clearly state that that's the case, but it's a clue, okay? I just wanted to throw that out there. Some people call this original sin. Adam passed it on. Paul does not explain the mechanism for how this sin nature is passed on because that's not his purpose. And I read a ton of stuff about the early fathers and who some people thought it was passed down through the semen. Some thought it was this. There's like all of this thought process on it, very in-depth, different views. But clearly, he doesn't spend time telling us exactly how that sin nature was passed on because that's really not his point, okay? That's not his purpose. So what Paul has said so far in this verse is that sin entered through one man and death through sin. All right, then we see the next point that the consequence of sin is what? Death. And so sin can bring several types of death, but I want to give you this truth. Death is separation. Death is separation. So sin entered through one man, death through sin, and death is separation. So let's talk about the different types of death or separation. Number one, there's spiritual separation from God. Immediately, the lost are alive. I mean, when the lost are there, they're alive to the world. Okay, so when you're born, you have this sin nature. You're what's called unregenerate. You're lost. But you're alive to things of the world. I'm walking, breathing, but I'm dead to God and the things of God. Okay? So there's spiritual separation. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. That's before you're saved and you come to Christ. You're saved by grace. All right? Ephesians 4, 18 says, the unsaved are darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. And we already saw in John the other day that you're under wrath if you don't come to God, you know, in John 3.16. You're under wrath. So there's spiritual separation from God. That's one type of death. Then number two, there's physical death. This is obvious. This is what we see. And, and when you have a physical death, you have a physical separation um, from other people. And we all know that when we lose someone we love, we feel that separation. It's hard. It's difficult. It doesn't feel normal. It's very, very hard when someone physically dies. We miss them. So we have spiritual separation, because remember, death is separation. Physical separation from other human beings. Then there's eternal death and separation eternal death and separation. Revelation 21.8 calls it the second death, which it's eternal separation from God and it's torment in hell. And some people think that the torment is the fact that we're separated from God and any influence of God, that that in itself is the torment, okay? That was Revelation 21.8. It's called the second death. That's the eternal, when God judges everything and it's all said and done. Now, unbelievers should fear all these types of death, these three deaths. But for believers, Christ has removed the fear of death. And so let's look at Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, where we're going to see that. Hebrews 2, 
14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, speaking of Christ, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. All you have to do is look back through every civilization and how they try to cope with death, how they would, you know, mummify their people, bury them with everything, plan for the afterlife. I mean, humanity knows that there's an issue with death, okay? So what we've seen is so far sin entered through one man, death entered through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned, okay? Young children do not need to be taught to be selfish or lie. Have y'all noticed that? The natural human depravity is obvious. John 8, Jesus told the unbelieving Jewish leaders that they belong to their father, the devil. Everyone not born again is a child of Satan. That's a hard word. That's a hard word. That was John 8, where he called, said, you belong to your father, the devil. Now, when we're thinking about this, and, and this is a hard concept, and there's something in us that's going to, but a few scriptures that speak to this are Psalm 51.5, where David said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3, Even from birth the wicked go astray, from the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. That's a hard word. In many ways, there's something that just objects to this. Um, we didn't exist when Adam sinned. So how is it fair that we're when Adam and we're, we're, we inherit his sin nature? There's a lot of discussion on do we actually get the guilt? And um, I, I can't even go there because I don't understand it. So I'm not going to attempt because Paul's not really going into that mechanism. But if you want to do further study, there's a lot of stuff out there. And theologians have wrestled with all of that forever. Nobody has the final word on it. It's one of those tensions that's very difficult that we have to just accept. The key to what Paul is doing is this, in this. If the principle were not true that we have a type of union with Adam so that all sinned, it would be impossible to make the point that there's a union with Christ so that all can be made righteous. Do you see the logic of that argument? That's what he's doing. It's in this union, though in many ways a mystery. Some people call it a mystical union, okay? But, you know, mystical gets into a lot of New Age stuff. But I'm saying it's a mystery. It's this union, though in many ways a mystery to us, that is the heart of how we're saved. So often as we ponder the ways of God, this one writer said, we can fall into a quicksand of human reason, that though important and necessary and useful, our human reason will always be inadequate to fully grasp the ways of God. We must plant our feet on the rock of God's character when we struggle to fully understand his ways. And this is, this is a Lisa Walker saying, this is what I say. The longer I live and walk with the Lord, the more certain I am of his character and the more uncertain I am of his ways. Because you see, you think you have God figured out and how he's going to do something and it changes. And then you realize, I don't know. What I, my, the, the Lisa Walker-ism, <laughs> I have an ism. <laughs> the longer I live and walk with the Lord, 
the more certain I am of his character and the more uncertain I am of his ways. And let me read you from a prophet who struggled with understanding what God was doing, and yet he landed his feet on the solid rock of who God is. And this is from Habakkuk, starting in 317. I know many of you will be familiar with this. After he saw all that was happening and the destruction and how God was dealing with his people, he says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, don't you love the yets of the word of God, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, not my circumstances, I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to go on the heights because of who he is, not my circumstances. And so, ladies, as we wrestle through our own circumstances or the truths that we're seeing, the key is to set your feet on who God is and his character. That is the secret. That was Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Okay, so the next truth is history proves that death reigns over all men. It's universal. History proves that. We can see it. That's not something that anyone would deny. And then he says, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. History proves that death reigns over all men. It's universal. So death reigned even before the Mosaic law was given. So we know there was a specific command to Adam, which he disobeyed, and we know that eventually God gave all of his law but in between there, everybody died. That's part of his argument. He said, Adam is a pattern or a type of the one to come. He's a type or a pattern of Christ. This is where Paul is going. The analogy, one man, one act. Adam, Christ. But that's where the analogy ends. Because he's now going to move to a different, okay? Notice verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. So we're going to be seeing that even though the, the pattern is the same in some ways, it's completely different. Paul is focusing here on the universality of human sinfulness, the subjection to the power of sin, and the centrality of Christ's death in breaking the reign of sin because you had sin reigning in death, but Christ reigning in life, the contrast. Adam offered himself as a slave to sin when he obeyed it. Sin began to reign, and sin became his master. And we're going to see in chapter 6 the same thought continued. The now, I want to make this point. I thought this was an interesting point for why Paul uses the illustrations he does. In the first century, 
Children born to a slave inherited the status of their parents. The child born to a slave was under the same master as the parent. So using this metaphor, Paul places all mankind under the same status as Adam. And he contrasts those in Adam that are in enmity with God and those in Christ that are at peace with God. Big contrast. So he says, but the gift, that word is charisma. It's free gift, or it could be called the grace gift. But the gift, he says, is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more, there it is, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? All right, I want you to notice, but is the contrast, and immediately we see that Adam's brought death, but Christ brought life. And how much more? I just love the how much more. And then he goes on, and the other word in verse 15 that you see that indicates abundance. What do y'all see there? Look, for, look in verse 15. Your translation might be different. Abounded, mine says overflowed. I, love, I want you to notice these words as we move through this analogy of Christ. All right, so we already said, how much more and did the grace overflow or abound? And then in verse 16, again, the gift of God is not like the result of one sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift, remember the grace gift, followed many trespasses and brought justification. So you have condemnation versus justification right here. And then in 17, for or because if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, what do you see? How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Are you feeling these words, ladies? How much more abundant overflow? The contrast is stunning. And we should be moved by that. And not only through this abundant provision of grace and this gift of righteousness, but you're going to reign in life. So you can have sin as your master reigning in death, or you can reign in life. Not only are we not a slave to sin, we're actually reigning ourselves. How beautiful is that? All right? We possess eternal life. And you know what Jesus said in John 17, what eternal life is? to know God in Jesus Christ. It's a relationship. It's not just heaven and no suffering and streets of gold in a mansion, okay? It's to know God because that's what we were created for. So here's the truth. If death is separation, then life is reconciliation. If death is separation, then life is reconciliation. That's what we get when we come to Christ. And you know what our new master is? It's righteousness. We're going to see this in Romans 6. Romans 6, 18 says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So our new master is righteousness from Romans 6, 18. So he's just made this comparison. He laid the groundwork with Adam of how there's a union. And now he's made this point. Okay, 
and verse 18 and 19. Consequently, because of this, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification. And we've already talked about that right standing before God. That brings, what does that justification do? It brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man many will be made righteous. Now I want to stop for a minute and I want to give you a little extra information. As he's made this point about our union with Adam, this mystery union with Adam and how it brought sin, and our union with Christ, I want to talk a little bit about that union with Christ. Take a little parenthesis here. Our union in Christ is used by Paul, that term, in Christ, 164 times in his writings. In Christ. It's a spiritual reality whereby believers are joined to the Lord such that what is true of him becomes true of us. It's a profound mystery. And let me read you Ephesians 5.32. It says... For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It's a mystery what that union is, okay? Extra hard for us to understand in our culture because we live in a very individualistic society. It's about me and myself. We're not as collective as a lot of cultures are, okay? But how can you be connected and how can what one person does affect you the bible uses a lot of images to give us insight in this so i just want to touch on those john 15 the vine and the branches how you're united to the vine and the sap flows and you can do nothing apart from him and you must be in him abide in him to bear fruit okay we have the image of the lord's supper you're taking in the body and the blood of Jesus as a symbol of uniting. Now, we don't believe you actually, it actually becomes the body and blood like um, the Catholics believe, but it is a symbol of that. Jesus himself said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and that freaked everybody out because he wasn't talking about the physical flesh. It was that mystery union of being united. Another illustration that we see in 1 Corinthians is the head and the body of the church. Okay, he's the head and the church is the body of Christ. That's also in Colossians 1.18. Okay, um, we see this connection and it was very meaningful to Paul because on the road to Damascus in 9.4 when Jesus blinded him, you know what he said to Paul? Why are you persecuting me? And who was Paul persecuting? The church. So Paul had a, had a very special understanding of that from what Jesus said to him. Another illustration of this union is a building. Christ is the cornerstone, and we are stones being built almost like to a temple on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We see that as well. I didn't put that reference down. Uh, then we see the marriage in Genesis 2. The two become one flesh. I just read you the Ephesians one that said it's a mystery. Christ in the church. Okay. Another illustration. But the crowning illustration that we are united in Christ in such a way that it reflects the union of the three persons of the Trinity. And I want to read you what Jesus himself prayed in John 17. 
starting in verse 21. Well, I'll start in 20. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. Okay, he's, pray he was, he, he's already prayed for his disciples. Now he's praying for us, future believers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. See, there's a mystery in the Trinity. Okay? There's also a mystery in how Jesus is fully God and fully man. You, there's a lot of mysteries. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. Let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay? And then he says, I will continue to make you known that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So you see, there's a mystery in that. But that's the beautiful picture. And all of this occurs through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So now let's go back to Romans. And we talked about how much more in this amazing union. And now Paul is going to deal in verse uh, 20 with the law. What's the role of the law? You know this was always a big issue for the Jews. So he's always addressing it. He says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law served a temporary purpose in the plan of redemption. God gave the law as a pattern of righteousness, not a means of righteousness. The law cannot produce righteousness, but for someone who belongs to God and wants to please him, it's a guide for righteous living. But for the unregenerate or unsaved, the law has the power to incite men to unrighteousness, not because the law is evil, but because men are evil. All right? Um, if, you, if you say... Don't eat that cookie. I'm on a diet. I'm not going to eat that cookie. Maybe you're not like me, but guess what? You want to eat that cookie. There's this thing. I mean, and we can go with a lot of illustrations, but a cookie's pretty safe, so I'm going to stay there. So he says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Here's the contrast again, ladies, and the abundance, overflowing. We see the power of grace. So I want to give you this truth, and I want you to think on this. Maybe a new thought for you. Grace is not an attitude. It's a power. Grace is not an attitude. It's a power. This has especially helped me in the last couple of days. It's a power to love. It's a power to forgive. It's a power to save. God has given us his grace by loving us, forgiving us, saving us. We have that same grace living within us through Jesus Christ, and it's a power to do this for other people. So I want to ask you, how are you using this power of grace to bring life in your own life and the lives of others? What are we seeing? We're seeing two reigns here, sin and death, grace and life. The same thing is true with what we choose to pour out to other people, ladies. Are we going to bring death? Are we going to bring life? We see these two rulers, sin reigning in death, okay, 
He's already shown how he experienced this, and grace reigning through righteousness that brings eternal life. All right, now I want to give you this truth, and we've, we've hit this before, but I want to revisit it. Two parts to sin. Certainly sin is breaking the law of God, but it's ultimately preferring something or someone over God in his glory. That's ultimately what sin is, is preferring something or someone over God. And I want you to think about the prodigal son. He went to his father, and he said, hey, I want my inheritance. He was mad, you know. He wanted, he wanted his inheritance. When he didn't want the father, and he left with it, and he wasted it, okay. He wanted to take what the father had and go waste it and spend it on himself, okay. Give me my portion. So I want to ask you, what are you claiming for yourself and wasting? With your time, with your opportunities, with your devotion, what is God giving you? And we're looking at all the riches that he's given us in Romans. And what are you doing with it? And, and, and how are you wasting it? Sin, one author said, sin is to claim for myself, claim myself, excuse me, sin is to claim myself for my own, to act independently or contrary to the will of God, to have nothing to do with him, even, and this hit me, ladies, even if by forgetfulness or neglect. Even if by forgetfulness or neglect. And I want to take, I want to take you back to Hosea. I've read this to you before. I can never get away from this, the, if you know the story of Hosea. But this is what God said, talking to Israel. Ultimately, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, her false gods, but me she forgot. That's Hosea 2.13. So sin is to act independently and to have nothing to do with God, even if by forgetfulness or neglect. What did God say in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. How many of you have fulfilled that perfectly? Not me. And we see in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's really about treasuring and valuing the glory of God and caring enough about him that you are second and all your other business is second. So let me ask you, do you see your sin more clearly in light of this? And Alexander McLaren said this, there is no more conclusive proof of the power of sin over us than the fact that it has lulled us into unconsciousness of its presence. There is no more conclusive proof of the power of sin over us than the fact that it has lulled us into unconsciousness of its presence. We don't even see it as sin. That's, that's evidence that there's power of sin in our life. We don't even see it. There is no more conclusive proof of the power of sin over us than the fact that it has lulled us into unconsciousness of its own presence. And he says, this hideous queen of sin reigning causes men to think they're free when all the while they're her servants. 
Alexander McLaren. This hideous queen of sin reigning causes men to think they're free when all the while they're her servants. So we, we see in verse 20, well, let's see, 21. So just as sin reigned in death, there's your one queen. Sin is reigning. I heard someone say it means to reign means complete control. And I thought that's a great word. It's reigning in death. And sin does bring death, y'all. And we talked about the different kinds of death, but even in this situation at my job, I was thinking about people getting in the flesh, and they do this, and then it causes this, and then you see it causes this, and then people think this, and there's just death in that. There's not life in it. Whereas if grace is offered and either no words or kind words and the right response, there's life in that. And we have that power, ladies, as believers. We have that power because grace is a power. So... We see the power of sin reigning, but then we see the other ruler. So also grace might reign. Notice might reign because we do have to accept it. Grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. The queen of grace, the love of God pouring out to the undeserving. The love of God gives us his righteousness because there's no life without righteousness. So here's our next truth. Sin's fruit is death. And the fruit of righteousness and grace and or grace is life. I want us to keep both of those in mind. Sin's fruit is death. The fruit of righteousness is life. And when I say righteousness, I'm talking about the righteousness that God gives us. And then we pour that out in regard to grace. Grace is what we offer. All right. Eternal life. Death is separation life is reconciliation that's why eternal life is to know god is to know him here and now it's ours now as we know him and one day it will be ours much more fully when the presence of sin is gone praise god i look forward to that day so which of these queens to which of these queens do you belong look at the fruit in your own life and will you surrender to the how much more of god's amazing grace now, I want you to pull out your lyrics that I had out there for Amazing Grace, if you picked one up. And I want us to look at that, and I want you to keep not only in your mind what we talked about tonight, but what we've been seeing in Romans so far. Because we said grace is a power, grace is reigning in life. And John Newton was stunned by grace, and this is such a famous song, and we know a lot of the lyrics, but I want us to think of them in light of what we've been learning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I want you to circle the verbs that you see. What does grace do? It's saved. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. What does grace do? It taught you to fear. You know what that means? I'm oblivious to my own sin. I'm oblivious to the judgment of God until grace comes in and lets me see that I'm under his judgment and wrath. Grace taught my heart to fear. And then it says, grace my fears relieved because salvation brought forgiveness and righteousness. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. We talked about how, how problems develop, you know, when you persevere, it develops your character, and hope does not disappoint. Remember we talked about that? You're going to have difficulty. You're going to have trials, but you come through them. 
Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So grace is bringing you along, and grace is going to lead you home. You see the power of grace here, ladies? The Lord has promised good to me. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. We're seeing that. It's who God is. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil, past the curtain that was torn because we have access now, a life of joy and peace. Haven't we been seeing that? That was on the ladder last week that we talked about. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. What I tell you eternal life was? Reconciliation. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise, his glory, and to see the beauty of who God is than when we first begun. Let me ask you this. What's infinity minus a billion? Y'all know? Infinity. It's never going to get old when we're with the one that we were made for. So, truly, ladies, we should be amazed at our God and this grace, this power that he has chosen to give us. Why, oh, why would you not choose him every day? So I want to encourage you to not only choose him above all other things, but then choose to be that channel of grace in every opportunity, big ways and small ways, ladies, because we have that power. I'm thinking about trying to make myself a costume like a superhero that has grace on it and wearing it to the thing. So I don't know. I'm thinking about that because grace, I just love that thought that grace is a power. What does he say? Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We forget the power that we have, ladies, by denying our flesh and letting the queen of grace reign. So let me pray. Oh, God, we thank you that you have poured out the how much more abundantly overflowing to us, undeserving. Forgive us that we block that channel and we do not pour it out to others. Help us to be not only an open channel, but Lord, enlarge our channels. Enlarge our channels of grace so that we can pour out the goodness that you have shown us to those in our lives that are lost, that are confused, Lord, that are hurting, that are under the reign of sin and death, Lord that we would not judge them, but we would do what you have done for us. Open the floodgate and let the grace and love of Jesus Christ flow into that. Lord, help us to do that, that we would bring life and not death. And I pray this in your name. Amen.